Alan. It's Chris Johnard. And I met you up at Mark Twain Brewery, just giving you a reminder about seeing if there's anybody else who might be a single for the uh, pub crawl in Ireland. Um, and then at some point, if you could discuss why schnapps are horrible, maybe that would be a good episode. I'll talk to you later. Bye. And so there you go. That's how easy it is to leave us a voicemail on the History Hotline. Chris there uh, is a friend of mine, comes into the pub on occasion. Uh, I was up at Mark Twain Brewing back in Hannibal a couple of weeks ago, and we got together and we had a couple of beers. And Chris is looking for somebody who would be willing to double up with him in a twin room for the Ireland tour next October. So if you're that kind of person... Uh, you can be a guy or a gal, as long as you're trusting. I'll introduce you to Chris. We can meet down at the pub sometime, and maybe you guys can work something out. But he's looking for somebody to be a roommate for the trip next October. And uh, so if you, you'd be interested in being that person, just let me know, and I'll make introductions. All right. So, ah, what else? What else? What else? Oh, man, we got a really good new beer at the pub this tonight. And I've drank my fill of it, which is why I'm now drinking iced coffee. Because I tell you what, it's uh, the uh, Lazy Magnolia, which is a brewery. It's a craft brewery out of Mississippi. And their beer is called the uh, Orange Sangria Sour. And it is so, it's so fucking good. It's so fucking good. You need to get down to the pub and try it. It's absolutely astonishing. It's such a good beer. So, we're having it at the pub until we can't get it anymore. So, there you go. Get down there and try it this week. Now, on with the show. There's an old Missouri expression, don't piss down my back and tell me it's raining. And yes, I said Missouri. Because that's the way I grew up saying it. It's my birthright. I can say it that way if I fucking want to. You know, in general conversation over the years, I've learned to say Missouri more often than not because I just got fucking tired of getting into an argument with people whenever I said Missouri. Missouri? Don't you mean Missouri? No, I fucking mean Missouri because that's the fucking way we say it in Saverton up in Rawls County, Missouri. And Kate Catshaw said it that way. She's also from Missouri. She said it that way in Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. So the pronunciation is legit. I especially grow tired. I, I, I did. I grew tired of people when I was uh, working in corporate sales out on the East Coast and down in Texas. And I worked for this company that was based in New Jersey. And they had me working out of Dallas, but I had to attend meetings and conferences all over the country. And whenever we were there and somebody would say, where are you from? And I would say, Missouri. And well, I've already explained the rest. So over the years, I just got fucking worn down by them. And I started saying Missouri to those I didn't know. And I only use Missouri sparingly when I am in the presence of friendly company. Now, do you know how that controversy started? Well, it wasn't an issue, see, before radio and television. Regional and local dialects were different all over the country. But other than the Louisiana-Louisiana argument, 
there really isn't a difference in how people pronounce the name of their own state, except for Missouri, Missouri. And that difference is highly pronounced, sometimes differing even from county to county. And it's been that way for a very long time. Now, the French were the first to use that word, and they learned the name from their Algonquin guides as the name of the nation of Siouan people who lived at the confluence of the Mississippi and Missouri-Missouri rivers. And the Algonquins called these people the Wimahisarita, Mahisarita, and that's where Missouri comes from. It meant the people with the dugout canoes. See, the Algonquin culture from around the Great Lakes, they made their canoes out of birch bark. So a canoe that was made from a dugout log would have been unusual to them. And the Wimihisarita, uh, they had wooden canoes. Um, now, the Wimihisarita, or Missouri, they called themselves New Iachia meaning the people of the river mouth, because that's where they lived. They lived at the mouth of the Missouri River. And they also, there was another big uh, bunch of them over on the Missouri River at the mouth of the Grand River. Anyway, and the reason we know this is because the Missouri Indians still have a tribal presence in Red Rock, Oklahoma, and they are now known as the Oto Missouri Tribe. The French uh, that first came into Missouri, Missouri, they probably called it Missouri, but some linguists have argued that they may have been calling it Missouri. Uh, the first Americans who settled in the territory came from the southern side, uh, the southern states of Virginia, North Carolina, Kentucky, Tennessee, and their speech patterns did not stress the last vowel on words, what linguists will call the schwa sound. William Clark of the Lewis and Clark uh, expedition fame, being from Virginia, in both his expedition and territorial papers, he often spelled the word differently with both an I at the end and an A. So there we are. Furthermore, according to Charles Gilbert Yeomans, an English professor emeritus at the College of Arts and Sciences at the University of Missouri, Missouri, in his research, as well as the work of the late Dr. George Pace, another MU English professor, they both explained how Missouri pronunciation evolved from a spelling-based English pronunciation of Missouri. Yeah, that's probably how the first English speakers coming into the territory called it, Missouri. Eventually, the finally lightly stressed syllable of I shrunk to uh. The uh sound is a default vowel for unstressed syllables in the English language, especially older dialects of the English language going back to the British Isles of the 16th, 17th, and 18th century. So, according to Yeomans and Pace, neither the Missouri or Missouri pronunciation was originally used by English speakers, but evolved from Missouri pronunciation into the two pronunciations that we have today. But this controversy didn't begin until the middle of the 20th century because one man was asked, how do you say this word? Now, nearly everyone outside of the state of Missouri, Missouri, 
professes that Missouri is the only correct pronunciation, and this is because of Walter Cronkite. Now, back when he worked for the UP and then later CBS News in the 1940s and 50s, because he was born in St. Joseph, the editors and reporters would ask him, how do you say the name of your home state? But Cronkite, see, he only lived in Missouri, Missouri, until he was 10 years old when his fam family moved to Texas. And by the time of his career emerging as an international correspondent and a national reporter, Cronkite hadn't been in Missouri, Missouri for more than just visits in more than 25 years. And so, according to this reporter, Missouri was the only correct pronunciation. And so it began, and that's the way it was. Thank you, Walter, for clearing that up. Also, have you ever wondered why the fuck we pronounce the double S in Missouri, Missouri, as a Z sound and not an S sound? Why don't we say Missouri or Missouri? No, we say Missouri and Missouri, but yet we don't say Mississippi. And what does that have to do with the history of alcohol? Absolutely nothing. I got off on a tangent. Sorry. Now, back to the old Missouri expression that I first heard when I was a child. Don't piss down my back and tell me it's raining. Basically, that means don't tell me something is one thing when I rightly know very well that it's another. And right now, there is a war going on in which that is happening in the craft brewing industry that's just exactly what it is. There are currently a number of beers that call themselves craft beers when they are far, far from it. Now, they might have once been craft beers, but they are no longer such. They were bought up by the galactic empire of brewing known as AB InBev. And they're made by companies that make over 100 million barrels of beer a year in large, sprawling industrial breweries all over the world. And more and more of these craft breweries are being bought up every year or having their distribution rights bought up by the evil empire. But the Rebel Alliance of Craft Brewing is fighting back. They are resisting. They are fighting back, and they want you to know that the battle has just begun. And their motto? Take craft back. I'm Alan Tapman, and because no good story ever began with this one time we were eating a salad, this is history, the story of alcohol. Today's story really isn't history because it just came to my attention two days ago. It's been going on a couple of years, but I once had a history professor tell me that journalists are nothing more than the uh, documenters of what will be history next year. And that's kind of where this story is about. This is an ongoing thing that's happening right now in the craft beer community. Now, two days ago, the Brewers Association 
an advocacy organization, nonprofit out of Colorado that presents, excuse me, represents craft brewers, announced that it's launching a crowdfunding campaign to buy Anheuser-Busch InBev. And it only needs $213 billion to do such. The Brewers Association is calling the campaign Take Craft Back. And so far, it includes a website, hashtags, videos of brewers, and others talking about why craft beer matters. It's going to be one of the largest crowdfunding campaigns in history, trying to raise money totaling the value of AB InBev that has just last year completed the largest corporate merger ever in history, when AB InBev bought SAB Miller Coors. But the Brewers Association, that's the, the advocacy group for craft breweries, isn't so much concerned with that deal, but another practice that AB InBev is pursuing, as well as a marketing strategy of longtime Anheuser-Busch distributors. AB InBev has wholly or partially purchased a number of American craft breweries over the past few years, including Tin Barrel Brewing, Blue Point, Breckenridge, Devil's Backbone, Elysian, Fordham and Dominion, Four Peaks, Golden Road, Goose Island, Kona, Red Hook, Wicked Weed, Widmer. And it doesn't look like they're going to be ending this practice anytime soon. And that list doesn't include the brands that the merger with SAB Miller Coors brought with them to the party, which includes Blue Moon and Leinenkugels, among others. And it also doesn't take into consideration corporate-created bands like Shock Top and Third Shift, which try to pass themselves off as craft-brewed beers, but they're not. They're industrially brewed in giant corporate breweries. And AB InBev purposely does not identify these brands accordingly. The craft brewing community considers these marketing practices disingenuous. They're lies, leading the Brewers Association to name these products made by former craft breweries that are now owned by the conglomerates as crafty beers. Now, admittedly, some of the aforementioned beer brands that are claiming to be craft brewed beers that once were craft brewed beers but no longer are, they're not terrible. And if my only choice when I go into a pub somewhere was one of these crafty beers versus a typical mass-produced American light lager, I'd choose the corporate crafty beer. But here's the thing. I want to know where my beer comes from. And this is why I say to these guys, don't piss down my back and tell me it's raining. What constitutes a craft brewed beer? That's what I want. I want craft brewed beers and I want them to be honest about it. Now, according to the Brewers Association, there are some parameters that are universally accepted as defining what a craft beer is. First, small volume. It's estimated that only 6 million barrels of beer created in the United States annually are from true craft breweries, and that represents only 3% of the total beer sold in the United States. Secondly, independent. To be recognized as a craft brewery, according to the Brewers Association, only 25% or less of the company can be owned and or controlled 
by an alcohol industry member that is not itself a craft brewer. Thirdly, traditional. A brewer that has a majority of its total beverage alcohol volume in beers whose flavors derived from traditional or innovative brewing ingredients and their fermentation. In other words, no artificial procedures used, no artificially produced flavors, and so flavored malt beverages, like uh, a certain apple ale, and I won't say the name, they're not considered beers. Other parameters and concepts which distinguish craft beer from mega-produced beers include craft brewers are, as the name states, they're craftsmen at their trade. They're not chemists working in a beer factory. The hallmark of craft beer and craft brewers is innovation. Craft brewers interpret historic styles with unique twists and develop new styles that have no precedent. Craft beer is generally made with traditional ingredients like malted barley. Interesting and sometimes non-traditional ingredients are often added for distinctiveness and variety, but not to level out, dumb down, or homogenize the brew, but to give the brew a distinct personality. Craft brewers tend to be very involved in their communities communities, through philanthropy, product donations, volunteerism, and sponsorship of events. Now, it's not that the big guys don't also contribute to charities, but local dollars spent with craft brewers stay in the local community. Craft brewers have distinctive individualistic approaches to connecting with their customer. Craft brewers, by their very nature are not trying to appeal to the largest audience. They are focused on making brews for craft beer lovers. Craft brewers maintain integrity by what they brew and their general independence, that is, free from any substantial interest by a larger conglomeration that is not a craft brewer. And the majority of Americans all live within 10 miles of a craft brewery. Drink locally. You've seen that sticker out there. When you do that, you're employing people in your own neighborhood, your own community, and your own state. Now, about this take-back craft effort by the Brewers Association, they're right up front with it. There's no way that a crowdsourced campaign is ever going to be able to buy out Anheuser-Busch InBev. It's just not going to happen. Okay, Here's why. If, say, there are, let's be generous, um, one-tenth of the U.S. population is 30 million people. And let's say they're all craft beer lovers, all right? And every one of them donated just $100. That is still only $3 billion, or just a little bit north of 10% of the 213 billion dollar value of AB InBev. Now, as the Take Craft Back website, and you can find it at www.takecraftback.com, as they explain, Take Craft Back is intended as a humorous rallying cry to bring attention to a very serious issue. AB InBev's intention is to permanently alter the craft landscape by presenting acquired brands as if they were truly, authentically independent, which ultimately narrows the real choice 
in the marketplace for beer lovers. Now, given the extraordinary dollar amount, this tongue-in-cheek language and the unlikelihood that AB InBev would actually sell to the Brewers Association, it's pretty obvious that the organization is using this announcement as a publicity move to get people talking and people like me podcasting about craft beer. However, if one simply reads the headlines or watches the lighthearted online commercial that's back there at takecraftback.com, it would be easy to mistake the campaign for a serious one. Sure, it sounds like a lot, the spokesman for Take Craft Back says. Holy crap, it is! Anheuser-Busch Vice President of Communications, uh, when asked about this uh, Take Craft Back, her name is Gemma Hart, she wrote an email to, uh, to uh, a news outlet. We can take a joke. While the fake money for this campaign piles up, we will keep focusing our donations on giving back to communities across our country. What else is AB and Bev going to say, really? Yeah, sure. All the while, you're suppressing the distribution and sale of any beer that isn't yours. The battle between the galactic empire known as AB InBev and the craft brewing rebel alliance is nothing new. Sam Calagione, the founder of Dogfish Head Brewery in Milton, Delaware, is one of the true Jedi Knights in the battle against the big beer empire. A year and a half ago, in an interview with Men's Health magazine, Calagione expressed his true feelings about AB InBev's moves against the craft brewing segment of the market. Quote, They'll buy a once independent brewery, I'm not naming names, he says, and suddenly its IPA's kegs are on the street for half as much as a true indie craft beer. It really shows they're using this once craft branded beer as pawns in their game to knock the true indie breweries off of the board. It may be good for AB InBev, Calagione says, but it's not great for a consumer that loves the choice, diversity, and excitement indie craft breweries have brought back to the American brewing scene. It seems like AB's strategy is to let the original brick and mortar of once was what once was a craft brewery make their esoteric and super weird beers so it kind of looks like an independent brewery, and this is the case as it is with Goose Island. However, they take two or three flagship brands and make them in their giant fully automatic mega breweries to sell them super cheap. Now, this really disrupts the market, but they'd rather shine a light on esoteric stuff from a once independent brewer. Calagione was also asked about the Budweiser anti-craft beer ads that were shown during the Super Bowl in 2016. It was great for craft beer, he said. It shows how confused and conflicted the world's biggest brewery is about how to engage an American populace whose beer tastes are changing. I don't know if you remember these ads, but they were calling them macro brew instead of micro brew. They, they, they really were. They just don't have any fucking idea what they're trying to do. I, I guess they're doubling down on their base. That's what they're doing. They're not going to bring any craft beer drinkers 
into the fold with that kind of bullshit. Anyway, where was I? Calagione went on to say, the more they spite us for trying beer outside of the light lager juggernaut, the more we're going to stand for something very separate from what they're about. This as then, as they buy out the companies making beers that they're making fun of, the hypocrisy is entirely very apparent. He's got a point. Calagione went on to say, I'm sure there's a room full of MBAs and all they care about is the Budweiser brand. That's what they're paid to care about. They don't give a shit if promoting Bud means making fun of the other brand in the AB InBev network. They don't care. It shows that true craft brewers are brewers first, business people second. That company AB InBev runs is nothing but business people. Calagione is not the only man in the craft brewing community to speak out against big beer. Jim Cook, the founder of the Boston Brewing Company, the home of Samuel Adams, and one of the true pioneers in the craft brewing world, wrote an op-ed for the New York Times last April in which he stated, I worry that yet another major shift in the beer landscape is upon us, and this time American consumers will be the losers. Cook continues, I'm just going to read this to you because it succinctly says what I want to tell you anyway. In 1981, there were 82 breweries in the United States, and our beer, fizzy and flavorless, was the laughingstock of the beer world. When he says our beer, he means American beer. Today, America is home to over 5,300 small, innovative craft breweries making unique, flavorful, creative beers. But, Cook says... The horizon isn't so bright. After years of 15% growth, the craft sector is down to the single digits. And part of this is to be expected in a maturing part of any market. But it's also a result of a pushback by a handful of gargantuan global breweries aided by slack government antitrust oversight. He goes on, We have seen a dramatic consolidation in our industry in recent years. It started in 2008 when the Department of Justice approved the creation of the duopoly in the beer industry by greenlighting a joint venture between Molson Coors and SAB Miller, thereby creating Miller Coors. And five months later, the merger of Anheuser-Busch and InBev. Overnight, about 90% of the domestic beer production was in the hands of two brewing giants. Now, this consolidation, it continued into 2016 when regulators approved the merger of SAB Miller and AB InBev, thus creating the, the largest merger ever in the history of the United States. The immediate result was a 6% increase in beer prices and the end of a decades-long decline in real beer cost. Drinkers began paying almost $2 billion a year more for their beer. At least 5,000 Americans lost their jobs because of the closing of craft breweries and the cost-cutting that followed, saving these new owners of this, this mega-brewery corporation, saving them an estimated $2 billion a year. That money goes to those two conglomerates that have been able to reduce their tax bills and move much of their profits offshore. And you would think that the government might step in on this, but they're not. 
the Department of Justice is allowing the damage to continue by greenlighting these two big brewers to extend their duopoly into craft beer by acquiring craft brewers. For example, last December, the department approved AB InBev's acquisition of Carbach, one of the largest craft brewers in Texas, a state where AB InBev already controlled 50%, 52, excuse me, 52% of the beer market. Drinkers buying cute-sounding brand names like Goose Island or Terrapin or Tin Barrel are often unaware that these brands, some of them once independent, are now just subsidiaries of Anheuser-Busch InBev or Molson Coors. It's not transparent about disclosing their true ownership anywhere on the bottles or cans that the beer comes in. Now, this unwillingness to use effective antitrust enforcement to protect American economic interest is in stark contrast to how the rest of the world operates. Before approving AB InBev's latest merger, antitrust authorities in China required it to sell its $1.6 billion stake in China's largest brewer back to the Chinese government at a bargain basement price. South Africa required guarantees of lifetime employment for all of its citizens that were employed by the breweries that SAB Miller and AB InBev took over. And the Monopolies Commission in the European Union required divestitures by SAB Miller and AB InBev to keep their new combined market share to 9%. In the United States, the AB InBev-SAB Miller merger was approved with largely meaningless conduct restrictions and the two big brewers were given a free pass to continue buying craft brewers and extending the duopoly into craft beer. When it comes to protecting American companies and workers, at least in beer, our government does make bad deals. Of course, the obvious rejoinder is, who cares? Goose Island still makes beer that consumers are buying, even if it's owned by AB InBev. But that misses the larger point. The growth and the excitement in the beer business is in craft beers, and its potential is threatened by a beer landscape that is heavily tilted toward these massive conglomerates that are trying to overtake independent, innovative entrants into the industry. And it matters because independent American breweries create beers for their local regions. They invest in their communities, they employ local workers, they pay taxes, local, state, and federal. American craft brewing is American manufacturing that doesn't outsource these well-paying American jobs. Get some craft brewers really talking and they'll tell you, we are headed for a time when independent breweries can't afford to compete. They can't afford the best ingredients. They can't get wholesalers who will support them. And that's happening now. Some wholesalers are buying up distribution rights of, of, of they're buying up distribution rights of craft breweries so they can sit on them and not promote their beer. And many independent breweries, they can't get shelf space and draft lines. Now, not all distributors are doing this. There are some just some bad actors in the marketplace. There are some excellent, excellent distributors that are doing their best to keep craft brewing in the public eye. 
and for example, I'm not, I don't want to be self-serving, but our friends over at Fectal Beverage have always, from the day that I started 18 years ago, Bernie Fectal walked into my pub and said, I'm here to do whatever we can do to help you succeed. And what I wanted to do was to create a pub with a craft brewing presence in mid-Missouri. And they have helped me to achieve that goal. There was another distributor who said, you'll never make it in this town selling all those funny beers. So there you go. Get some craft brewers together and then they'll tell you that if we continue down this path, we may be witnessing the beginning of the end of the American craft beer revolution. So hence, the Brewers Association take craft back. So what can you do as a craft beer drinker, the consumer, what can you do to help in the take craft back movement? Well, one, social media. Go to www.takecraftback.com and share the tools they have there on their webpage on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Number two, get involved in events with your local craft breweries and your places that support craft beer and sell craft beer. Your pubs, your bars, your saloons that are making a concerted effort to get craft beer into the community. Support them. Number three, tell your story. Why do you care about craft beer? Go to take the, the Take Craft Back website and let them know why you think craft beer is important. Tell your friends who enjoy craft beer why it's important to support true craft breweries and places that support craft beer in your community. Support independent craft breweries with your dollars. That's the most important thing you can do. They need you. And if we continue to support craft brewers, they are less likely to be gobbled up by the galactic beer empire. So, for a place to start, go to www.brewersassociation.org forward slash TCB Toolkit. And if you forget that web address, don't worry. I'll have a link to it at the, at the top of our Facebook page. I'll pin it there and you can find it there. Now, there are some that say this is a silly argument. They say that... that, that quality argument is invalid, that the beer, the big breweries produce good quality beer. They'll say that the taste argument is invalid because taste is like an opinion. You know, well, you can't say craft beer tastes better than mass produced beer because taste is, uh, it's subjective, right? And that's true. It's, it is. They'll say that beer choices are situational and they're right. I mean, I like, uh, on a hot, hot day, I like a nice ice-cold stag, a nice uh, ice-cold American-style lager. But, you know, and they'll also say cost shouldn't create a permanent stance. The idea of comparing cheap versus fancy is also problematic. Cost doesn't speak inherently to any sort of specific beer. The world has plenty of good bargains, and they also, it also has plenty of expensive crap. So let's... Let's assume that this whole debate on both sides sounds silly, right? It is. Oh, what is it? Or is it? We've seen this story before. 
We've seen this happen in almost every industry that we have in the United States, especially in the consumer era of the 20th and the 21st century. The big guy pushes the little guy out. It happens. When I was growing up in Hannibal, how many places were there? How many, how many local restaurants? How many small stores? Clothing stores, hardware stores, grocery stores. These were all owned independently. Neighborhood places. They're not there anymore. Why? Well, Walmart. You know? It's just, it's happening. And that's what is going on right now in the beer community with AB InBev. They are trying to push independent craft beers out of the market. So there it is, kids, from the pulpit. I'm probably preaching to the choir from here, but you need to know what's going on. Get involved. Craft beer has been growing more and more, and the evil empire doesn't like that. Nobody can keep craft beer growing except for you. That's us. We, it's in our hands. And that hand should be holding a pint or a can or a bottle of independent craft brewed beer. Well, there wasn't a lot of history this week on the program, but there was an important message. I want to let all of our friends out there know uh, that's the people, the good people at Boulevard. That's uh, the people down at Jeff, down at Mother's Brewing in Springfield. All the great local breweries up in Columbia, Log Boat, uh, Boone County, um, Broadway, and uh, even our friends out in Santa Fe, New Mexico, our friends at Dogfish Head in Delaware, and our friends at Lazy Magnolia down in Mississippi and other craft breweries all around this country. We're here, we understand your plight, and we'll do everything we can to help you. We're supporting you from Mid-Missouri. History Episode 44 was written and produced by me, Alan Tatman. The Technical Director of History is Brian McGeorge. The Marketing Director of History is Tim, I'm not the bomber McVeigh, of Mission Digital Marketing. History is a Wild Irish production recorded at River's Edge Studio, all rights reserved. And thanks to all of our Patreon patrons for supporting us. You keep the lights on, and if you'd like to become a Patreon patron, go to our website, that's www.history.com, and click on the support button and find out how you can contribute to the cause. Thanks to everyone who shared the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher, and shared the post on Facebook and retweeted on Twitter. That's the best way to get the word out about history. We still have 10 spots on our Grand Irish Pub Crawl Tour, and Chris is looking for a roommate. That's next October of 2018. If you'd like to learn more about the tour, you can find the, the, you can find the heading on our Facebook page, or drop me a line, or send me an email at cheersathistory.com. If you've got an idea for the show, and God knows we need them, uh, send me an email or leave me a message, or better yet, leave me a voicemail like Chris did. 409-292-6693. That's 409-29-BOOZE. Leave me a message over there, and 
and I'll put you on the air. Uh, the theme music for history is brought to you by Ben Sound. Do you have need for a music project? Check out Ben Sound, B-E-N-S-O-U-N-D.com. That's Ben Sound. And again, thanks to everyone for listening. I promise I'll keep trying to get better. And yes, I'm still working on that new project that I talked to you about a few weeks ago, and I should be able to tell you more about it very soon after all the legalities have been put to bed. So, if I don't see you at the pub this week, I'll see you right here on the podcast. And again, as always, Merrily, you are the measure of my dreams. So, goodbye, everybody.